0: If you have your Bibles today, would you open to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me remind you that our Bible studies are back up and running again tonight. We took a week off, but we're back meeting again. So ladies, don't forget your Bible study times this evening and fellas, you as well. Um, those happen in this evening's. Oh, and Tuesdays are mornings with men, if you attend those. We had to take a couple weeks off, we're back up and running. So this Tuesday, 6 o'clock in the morning, we will meet again here at the church. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, In former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. We have been seeing here for the last few weeks in our study of 1 Peter, Peter's admonition for believers to live above reproach, to live out excellence in their lives. We have learned that we do this by abstaining from fleshly lust, denying worldliness, living to honor God, that is, living as ambassadors of Christ. We've looked at this call, this mandate, this admonition, the imperative to live with excellence as pilgrims and sojourners in this world. As God's children, as citizens of his kingdom, to live distinctly different from the world, to live with excellence. Peter, continuing this train of thought, now emphasizes the role that our marriages play in living out excellence before the world. The, The importance of being above reproach in our individual lives as children of God, being above reproach as husbands and wives, being above reproach as married couples. So today we're going to look at what Peter has to say here. Now I will very quickly and admittedly tell you this is not an exhaustive discussion on biblical precepts for marriage. This will not be the end all and filled fullness of here's all the Bible says, We're just going to look at what Peter says here in this text. We're studying 1 Peter, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to see what Peter has to say about marriage. Now, I'll say this. He's going to talk about wives. He's going to talk about husbands. But he's going to give good information for everyone. So you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm not married. not planning on being. Well, tune in. I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will give you something, a nugget of truth to live by. Peter points out three things in regard to living above reproach in this text. The first thing he focuses on is simply marriages above reproach. He calls for marriages to be above reproach. He has already stipulated that those who are citizens of God's kingdom should live in excellence, not because of their ability, not because of who they are, but because of the change Christ has made in their life, because of who Jesus is and what he's doing in them and through them, that they live with excellence, that they live above reproach. You remember if you um, read with me a few weeks ago, he said live in an honorable manner, that is in a manner above reproach. So here we're continuing the address. This is the same train of thought. Remember, this originally, the scriptures as we have them, originally didn't have chapter and verse divisions. We're starting a new chapter, but this new chapter really ties to what Peter's already said. The reality is he's still teaching about living above reproach. He's just made his way to address husbands and wives at this point. He's saying children of God, God's own special people, God's holy nation, those who are of the royal priesthood, those who are of his representatives in this world have a major area of life in which they can display their distinction from the world. And that major area is your marriage. Your marriage becomes a distinct area area in which you can display godly virtue the transformative power of Christ what it is to live above reproach for Christ it is an area that the holy spirit will use as a tool to bring conviction upon the lost to bring encouragement to the saved your marriage should be a distinct marriage of excellence that the holy spirit has a tool to use in the life of others peter's calling for marriages to be above reproach. Now listen, we all know, we all know the reality of today's world that in our world today, the majority of marriages are not marriages above reproach. That marriage in general cannot be described by by excellence among many people. We know the statistics within the world that half of marriages are going to fail rather than succeed. The statistics show us that if you are actively engaged in church, you are an active participant, not a pew setter, but an actively engaged church member. Well, you lessen that to maybe around 27%, but some statistics will push that on up too. Nominal Christians, those who claim faith, but they're just nominal in their faith. They're pew setters, they come every now and then, that's their deal those people are 20% more likely than the national average to be divorced. Not a description of excellence. Over the last 20 years, the divorce rate has doubled among people 50 years old and older. Not above reproach. Statistics tell us that if you have very strong religious views, now that accompanies or encompasses any religion, but if you have very strong religious views, that means you actively participate in a faith. If that is you, you are automatically 14% less likely to even hear the word divorce in your marriage. Why is this even? a deal. Why do we even mention the need to be above reproach? Because we live in a culture that needs to see the distinction of those who follow Christ from what they do. We live in a world that needs to see what marriage is under the influence and the power of Jesus rather than what the world has to say. And you live in a community that needs this. According to our Census Bureau, the U.S. Census Bureau, Arkansas consistently will rank number two or three in the percentage of divorce. Per population. Our state is the highest. We stay at the top of the list. Number two or number three consistently among people who will divorce. People who will not practice excellence in marriage. Why do you need to? So that you can show them what Jesus can do in a God honoring marriage. You're immersed in a culture that needs this. Peter says if we're to live above reproach, you must be above reproach in your marriage. I got to looking at this When I got to reading all the Census Bureau stuff, it was very interesting. The Census Bureau has even tracked data on what contributes to divorce. I wrote down the top factors that the U.S. Census Bureau lists. Finances, family background, ethnicity, lack of commitment, infidelity, and just basic arguing. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau, these things lead to failing marriages. But the reality is there are biblical precepts that address each one of these things specifically and a multitude of scriptures that address marriage in totality. There's no reason for there to be failing marriages. There's no reason for there to be a lack of excellence. The best cure, my friends, for a failing marriage is based in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is facilitated through obedience to his word. Now, I can understand the world failing. I can understand those out in the world having marriages that struggle because they don't have the gospel and they don't adhere to God's word. But when we talk about born-again believers, when we talk about citizens of heaven, when we're talking about God's children, failure shouldn't even enter the vocabulary when we talk about marriage. We need to be above reproach. We need to practice excellence because we have the tools given us to do that. We are to live in excellence in our marriages so that we can show the world vividly the difference Jesus makes in someone's life. In fact, my friends, our marriages should provide a physical illustration of a spiritual truth. That's what your marriage is for. Your marriage is a tool to be used by the Holy Spirit to teach, to show, to illustrate a spiritual truth to those out in the world. You see, your marriage, when lived according to the scriptures and lived out in pursuit of excellence, provides a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5, beginning verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. A marriage of excellence paints a picture of the relationship Christ desires to have with his church. You are giving a physical example of a spiritual truth. Your marriage becomes a parable of sorts. You see, you illustrate how Christ loves the church so much that he has given himself for her. You illustrate how the church has yielded to this loving Christ in submission... You illustrate how a wife sees herself in relationship to her husband as the church is in relationship to Christ and how the husband loves the wife as Christ has loved the church and giving all of himself for her. You illustrate this reality that God has ordained a permanent union of faith between the church and Christ as he's ordained a permanent union between man and wife. You illustrate so many spiritual truths when you live out excellence in your marriage. You show people what God desires for them. If they would just come to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus. See, your marriage isn't so much about, look how happy I am, or look, we raised some kids, or we made a household, as it is, look how we have honored God and advanced his kingdom. That's what your marriage is for. You're living out a parable in the lost world, that they can grasp spiritual truth through the example they see in you. Jeffrey Bromley wrote this. As God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage to his people. Hear what he's saying? He has orchestrated marriage for the purpose of reflecting the image of his relationship with you. Christ as the groom, the church as the bride, as our marriages display excellence, we illustrate what a relationship with Christ does. You see, Peter calls to, for, for God's people to live above reproach, and he's done this systematic study, and now he's bringing it back around to say, okay, husbands and wives, let's talk about this. How are you going to live above reproach so that the kingdom of Christ, the gospel, is advanced? And then he gives some specifics. So that's where we really want to camp out today. Let's look at this. What specifics did Peter mention? He talked about marriages above reproach, but then he goes into marital roles that are above reproach. Marital roles. He speaks to the wives. He speaks to the husbands. He wants to explain, here's how you do it. Here's how you live out the role you've been called to with excellence. He begins his admonition with the ladies in six verses. Then he talks to the husbands in one. That's weird, isn't it? I looked that up, y'all. That intrigued me. For real, I did a study on that this week. I wanted to see what theologians had to say about six verses compared to one, and no no one even commented on it, so I was left to my own devices. So I thought about it, and I got to thinking about my experience, and here's what I've experienced I'll give you an example. This probably be the best way. Let me just give you an example. Had a lady mention in Fall Fest to me. Thank you for Fall Fest. That was such a great thing. I want to tell you how excited my little boy was. He came dressed like Spider-Man. He loves Spider-Man. He watches Spider-Man movies. He loves Spider-Man so much he had a Spider-Man costume and he wore his mask and he never would take his mask off because he likes to wear a mask. He always has that mask on. But he liked Spider-Man and he came to Fall Fest and he was so excited. He wore that Spider-Man mask and he played the game. His favorite game was the little wheel you spun and it made a clicky noise. Man, he just loved that clicky noise and he kept spinning the wheel. He just wanted to do it over and over. But I tell you, he won some candy but he got a full-size candy bar and when he got that full-size candy, he was just So excited. My boy was, thank you for Fall Fest. And that kid's dad spoke to me. Hey, um, my boy came to that Fall Fest and got a big candy bar. He was really excited. Six verses compared to seven. I'm going to tell you, if, if Peter would have went two verses, he would have lost the guys. He's like, what? I don't have to go home with my wife this afternoon, so I'm okay. We're on different tracks today. Let's see what Peter says to the wives here. How does a wife live in marriage with excellence? Here's what he says to do. Number one, submit to their own husbands. He mentions this in verse one and again in verse five. Submit to their own, that becomes key. Submit to their own husbands. Notice he starts the verse, wives likewise. Some of your Bibles say in the same manner or in the same way. Peter is referring back to something he's already said. Likewise, likewise, as I have spoken in chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Likewise, what I've already told you about living above reproach. Likewise, I have told you to live with excellence and do it this way. Just like I told you to do it there. Now, wives, do it here within your marriage. And it may involve submitting. You'll remember the end of chapter 2, submitting to authorities. Now, listen. Despite what many progressive groups claim, this verse and others like it, they are not a belittlement of women. It's not an attitude that women are lesser or less value or have a lesser position. That is not at all what's being communicated. And those who will promote that interpretation propagate a misinterpretation of Scripture. And they really reveal they don't have a contextual understanding of Scripture. That is not what's being communicated here, ladies. And, fellas, you can't pull this verse out and say, oh, that's not at all what's being communicated here. Notice the phrase, submissive to your own husbands, that to your own husbands is important. See, it's a very specific command. It's very specific. It reflects God speaking to a very specific role. Wives and husbands within a marriage, not women in general. This is speaking to familial roles and familial obligations. He's establishing the function of family with individual roles. This is not a statement about women in general, in society society, and culture. In fact, this statement, when viewed correctly, reveals the high value that Scripture places on women, how Scripture holds women in esteem, and they are not subservient to men in any way. In fact, if you know your Christian history, you'll know that in the first century women had no rights and it was within the Christian church that they were recognized and honored and given certain rights. Without Christianity, these ladies were in a real hurting spot. So, first thing Peter says, if you want to live with excellence, submit to your own husbands. This is a call for wives to submit to their husbands' God-given role as spiritual leader in the home. This isn't just being subservient. This is yielding to the husband's call to be the spiritual leader in the home. And Colossians chapter 3 says you submit for its fitting to the Lord. You do this because God has established an organizational structure for the family. That organizational structure says the husband is a spiritual leader. And you submit to him not because he's a great guy, not because he's a genius, not because he does everything right, simply because it's fitting to the Lord. You want to honor God. You're seeking to obey the Lord. You see, when the Bible speaks of submission in this way, it is speaking of a voluntary subordination to the role your husband has been given, not because he's a great guy, not because he has all the right answers. You're simply submitting to the role God has placed him in because you're submitting to the authority of God. And when you do that, you're allowing your husband to fulfill the role God has called him to. To be a spiritual leader in the family. You see, biblical submission, as played out in the scriptures, is really nothing more than recognizing that God has ordained an organizational structure to the family. That's all it is. God says the family has to function. And for it to function, I'm going to create an organizational structure for the family to function. And he's created a structure. He said, husbands, I want you to be spiritual leaders. Wives, I want you to follow that lead. That's all it is, nothing more. In fact, when you look through the scriptures, this text as well as others, Paul writes, and you read about submission there, you see that the wording is that of a military structure. It's it's referring to that you find in the military. Well, the military has an organizational structure. There are soldiers who abide under leadership not because they're less valuable or less capable, because they just hold a different position. You have those in the military with different positions. You have sergeants, you have majors, you have colonels. You have those who, because of the position, have authority over others, and it's just the organizational structure. It doesn't reflect that one soldier is less than the other or less valuable or less capable. It's just the system. It's an organization structure. That's the wording used here. You see... God has established marital roles so that the family can function with order and stability. When a wife yields to the leadership of her husband, she does so simply because it's the ordered structure God has ordained, and it functions to provide order and structure. When we ignore or we fail to function in our God-given roles, then our families lose their order, lose their stability, lose their functionability to advance the kingdom. So Peter says, wives, if you want to conduct yourselves with excellence, submit to your husband's God-given role. In other words, biblical submission is simply willingly yielding to your husband's authority as spiritual leader as he leads in Christ-likeness. Submission is never a call to blindly follow your husband into sin or to follow him to do things that violate God's will or dishonors the kingdom or discredits the gospel. He's leading in Christ's likeness, and you're yielding to that leadership. Here's the second thing the text tells us about wives living out excellence in marriage. And that's being chaste. Verse 2. We don't use that word much anymore. It comes from the Greek word hagnos. It means to be venerable, to be pure, especially from carnality. To be pure. To be pure. Pure especially from carnality. I would describe this as demonstrating the sanctification that began in you when you came to faith in Christ and continues on on a daily basis. As you're growing in the likeness of Christ, you're displaying that Christ likeness. It's the continued spiritual growth of a lady and it's reflected in this chaste conduct, in her pure expression of godliness, to be pure. To be pure. First Timothy 2, beginning of verse 8 says, I desire therefore that the men may pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. And in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. There in First Timothy, the Bible uses the word propriety in moderation. Wives, ladies, you're to conduct yourselves with propriety and moderation. That simply means conduct yourself with modesty. To conduct yourself with modesty. Now, I know I'm out on a tree limb here. Especially in recent months, this has become a very unpopular topic among Christian circles. If you follow, if you follow any type of Christian social media, there have been some just ugly, ugly arguments among Christians about speaking on modesty. In our culture, it's backward, it's demeaning, it's abusive to tell people to be modest, especially if you tell a girl to be modest. That's abusive language. Well, here's all I will speak to that. My answer to that is simply this. This text here refers to propriety and moderation, that is modesty, God's word says it, and I cannot ignore it, and neither should you. It may not be popular. There may even be Christians who say it's abusive, but the reality is God's word says, ladies, conduct yourself with modesty. I don't know what else to tell you other than that. Modesty. Modesty but I have liberty in Christ to dress how I want and talk how I want and be who I want. Well, my friend, I don't think God is as concerned about your feelings of personal liberty and dress and conduct as he's concerned about you maintaining the integrity of your profession and the validity of the gospel. And we can desecrate the integrity of our profession of faith in the way we talk and act and dress and carry on, men and women both. See, God's saying be modest in what you allow in your head and in your heart and be modest with what you display because you're protecting the integrity of your own profession and the validity of the gospel you claim changes people. When I will not abide in modesty, I'm saying the gospel has made no difference in my life. I will act like, talk like, think like, dress like, do everything else, just like the world. There's been no transformation within me I have not protected the validity of the gospel at all or the transformational power of Christ. The reality is nothing should take the focus off of Christ's power in our lives, his work in our lives. You see, when I practice modesty, it's really about me giving God glory for the transformational work that's occurring within me and not wanting anything to detract or distract from the work of Christ in my life. But if I live immodestly in word and action and deed and apparel, whatever it may be, I get the attention. You know what I'm doing? I'm still in God's glory. I'm getting the attention. I'm getting the glory rather than the glory being on Christ who's transformed my life. See, that's really what modesty is. I either get the attention or I let God have the attention. Who gets the attention? That's the bottom line with it. To be chaste in conduct, to be pure of conduct. That's the call here. And it's mentioned in the ramifications of the marital roles. To have a chaste conduct, to be have a pure conduct towards God and towards husband. Ladies, are you pure in your conduct? Distinctly pure from worldliness. And notice what he couples with that. He says, and with fear. Accompanied with fear. Not trembling, I'm afraid but reverent fear, a reverence for God, a seriousness about God in all you do, in every area of life, to be serious about who God is and who he's calling you to be, to be serious about what honors God in every avenue of life, to be serious about God when it comes to finances or children or, well, anything. To be so serious about God that it affects every aspect of who you are see being pure in conduct really will only happen when I get truly serious about God in every area of my life because then I guard every area of my life so that it honors God here's the third thing he says he says to live in excellence within the marital roles a lady needs to focus on the adornment of the hidden person of the heart The adornment of the hidden person of the heart. You see that in verses 3 and 4. Inward beauty is what he's referring to here. Now, please hear me. There's nothing wrong with outward beauty. In fact, he even says merely. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Some people get on this kick to says, well, now, you know, the Bible says the lady doesn't need to be putting on all that makeup and this and that, and that. No, no, no. It said don't let it merely be outward. Nothing wrong with fixing yourself up and being beautiful and all that. In fact, listen, if a barn needs a little paint, put a little paint on it, you know? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Nothing wrong with outward beauty, but Peter says, look, if you want to live with excellence, nurture a beauty within. Nurture an inward beauty. You see, the beauty that a lady needs to nurture more than anything is the beauty of the hidden heart, the inward person, the spiritual virtue. The beauty that comes from a Christ-like character that's growing and flourishing within. You see, the beauty that results in excellence is not a physical beauty, it's a spiritual beauty that's nurtured. It's nurtured within the heart. It's a spiritual virtue that comes from knowing Christ and growing in his character. And I dare say that spiritual virtue that develops from fellowship with Christ will draw the affections of your husband. Now I know some of you are like, you don't know anything about physiology, dude. No, I do. But I'm telling you, on a spiritual level, the way God has orchestrated and ordained marriage, when there's a spiritual virtue, an inward beauty of Christ's likeness, it will draw the affection of your husband. You see, physical beauty, it's passing. It will fade. But the inward beauty will continue to grow for a lifetime. It is something you can nurture and continue in because you continue in the progressive sanctification of Christ as he grows you in his character until the day you enter his presence. In fact, the text here says it's an incorruptible beauty. Incorruptible. It can't be tarnished. It can't fade away. It can't be done away with. It's reflected, it says here, in a gentle and quiet spirit. And that simply refers to a spirit of humility and meekness that promotes tranquility within the home. See, ultimately, this is what Peter's talking about. The beauty of a transformed life that continues to grow more and more beautiful as it reflects the character of Christ. You see, as you grow in an inward beauty, what you do is you reflect the grace of Jesus. And you might agree with me, I think your husband probably needs grace over and over and over again. And how do you get that grace as you grow in the character of Christ? you have the grace you need to demonstrate to him. You see, a wife who has a glowing inward beauty is one whose husband feels the grace, the mercy, the love, the acceptance that comes from the very one God has brought into his life to make him complete. That's what he's looking for, ladies. That's what he needs. Grace from you that comes only through Christ. Now, I truly believe ladies have been fashioned by God to express beauty, the beauty of a life transformed in Christ in an outward fashion as well as an inward fashion. And when your inward character reflects the beauty of Christ, your outward appearance and conduct will show it. So Peter says, okay, ladies, live with excellence. Then he says, okay, guys, your turn. Let me talk to you husbands a little bit, he says. And so he takes verse 7, and he lays out three specific things for the husbands. And what he's ultimately doing, is he's laying before the husbands the requirements of being a spiritual leader. And the reality that as spiritual leaders, they are called to love their wives with a supernatural love based in Christ. Peter doesn't use the terminology, but he's really playing upon what Paul said to the church at Ephesus when he told them husbands must love their wives as Christ has loved the church and has given himself for her. He's saying, husbands, you must assume the role of loving your wives so that you would lay down your life and everything for her. And then he says, here's how that plays out in three specific ways. If you want to love your wife as Christ has loved the church, if you want to be the husband God is calling you to be, it will play out in three specific areas, in three specific tasks you can do. Here's the first one. All these are in verse 7. He says, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. We're to dwell in understanding. To dwell in understanding. Now, the terminology used there, to dwell, does not simply mean to dwell and to live in the same abode. It doesn't mean to have a roommate. It doesn't mean just to live in the same house. It doesn't mean you're just kind of part of the same family. To dwell there reflects the husband's duty to intimately interact with his wife. To have an intimate, ongoing relationship to cherish a relationship. See, what Peter's getting at here is this idea that husbands should cherish the opportunity to dwell with their wives. Husbands should see this woman as the woman God has brought into my life and I cherish the opportunity to dwell with her, to know her, to interact with her. I just don't share life with her. She's not just my baby mama. She's this gift from God I cherish. And I want to nurture that. And when I get there, I have this desire to consider her needs. See, what's required here is really to be considerate of her needs. To be considerate of her needs. Understanding that your wife needs more than the bills to be paid and the sink to be fixed. Although if the sink needs to be fixed, you better get it fixed. Your wife needs more than that. That's the reality. And you need to understand your wife. You're like, whoa, understand my wife? Come on. Someone said you can't understand women. I tried to figure out who said it. I think it was Adam back in the garden. I think it was Genesis 3 or 4. I think I read. No, not really. It's not in the Bible. How do you understand your wife? Hmm. You become a learner of your wife. You become a learner of your wife. You begin to learn who she is. You begin to learn what makes her tick. You begin to learn who God has created her to be and who God is calling her to be. You begin to learn your wife. You learn what her emotional needs are. You learn what her insecurities are. You learn what her strengths are. You learn what her capabilities are. You learn where she has weaknesses. You learn your wife and you learn what pours into her. You learn what she receives and perceives as love and adoration and honor and respect. You learn your wife. Hardest course you'll ever take, men. Most difficult study you'll ever do. It's the one you're assigned to as spiritual leader of your home. To be the husband God's called you to be, you have to learn your wife continually, daily, to be considerate of her needs and know what those are. See, as spiritual leader of the home, you have the obligation... Of knowing your wife well enough to know what will work to nurture her relationship with Christ and nurture her to become who God's calling her to be and nurture her in spiritual growth. You need to know what she needs to grow spiritually and emotionally, to be maintained physically, to be secure, to experience the joy, the peace, the happiness, the security that's found in Christ, and to help her understand that. That's your obligation, husband. It's your obligation. You're the spiritual leader to see that done. And you dwell in understanding, you're considerate of her needs. You have to learn her so that you can be. Peter goes on though. He says you need to focus on bestowing honor upon your wives. Bestowing honor upon your wives. Mm, does that mean pat her on the back or tell her, has a good dinner or thanks every now and then? Well, that word honor is very important. It's a specific word. Time. It means to honor one because of the office he or she possesses with deference and reverence. The word literally means someone receives honor because they hold a position. And because they hold that position, You practice deference towards them. You see, wives should be honored, according to the word used by Peter, not because they make you happy, not because they do everything you want, not because they fulfill all these domestic duties or they help earn money outside the home or they do this or do that, they please their husbands. No, your wife should be honored simply because God has said she's your wife. She has that position. So honor her. Simply honor your wife because she is called wife. That's why you honor her. You don't honor her because she's going to respect you all the time or please you all the time. You're going to honor her because you want to honor your heavenly father. So you honor her. You want to be obedient to God. So you're going to honor her. She has been called into this position as your wife. So you honor her. People get this all out of whack. Man, my wife doesn't make me happy. My wife doesn't do what I want her to do. My wife doesn't do that. My wife nags me all the time. My wife's this, my wife's that. that, that. Man, I can't put up with her. No, 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 no. Just honor your wife. Are you crazy? Yeah, I am because the Bible said honor your wife. Just honor your wife and see where that goes. Because she's your wife. Not because she does it all right. Not because she has it all together. Not because there's never a breakdown or some crazy tears you don't understand. She's your wife. Honor her. Honor her. And there is this concept of deference related to that. To defer to her. You see, for a husband to live with their wife in excellence, he must practice deference towards her. That's a respectful esteem that's willing to submit to what is best for her. When I respect my wife enough to esteem what's best for her and pursue it, now I'm honoring her. That's what I'm called to do. Note, Peter uses the word likewise, or some of your Bibles, in the same way. He's referring back once again to what he's already said in chapter 2. If you want to live above reproach, you want to live with excellence, you need to do these things, and part of it involves submission. And as husbands, you must submit to the needs of your wife so that they are cared for properly and grow in their faith. I defer to what she needs so that she can become who God's calling her to be. I submit to God's call upon her life, and I help nurture it. And let go of what I expect out of her, and I say, Jesus, what you expect from her, and help me get her there. I defer to her. I defer to her in that. Don't ask Christy if I do this, by the way. I'm I'm a work in progress. I'm getting the sermon right now when you're getting it. So, husbands who lead their rollout of spiritual leader with excellent are husbands who will say, I will defer to the needs of my wife so that I can see God transform her into who he wants her to be. I will subdue my own desires so that her pursuit of holiness can happen. So there will be days I don't get to fish. I know. There'll be days I don't go hunting. There'll be days I don't tinker in the shop. There'll be days I don't do this or do that because for my wife to pursue her God-given call of holiness, I'm going to defer to what she needs and I'm going to make sure it happens. That's deference because you honor your wife. Guys, it's never about what's best for you. It's about what's best for her in her walk with God. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a text. It doesn't really refer to husbands and wives particularly. It's to the faith, to the fellowship of believers. But listen to what it says. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. There you go, guys. That's how you defer to your wife. You let go of selfish ambition and conceit, and you esteem your wife's needs, and you pursue them so that she grows to be who God's calling her to be. That's bestowing honor upon her. You remember that just as Jesus gave all he had for the church, you give all you can to your wife to see her progress in sanctification. Peter goes on, one more thing he mentions. He mentions this whole idea of treating her as the weaker vessel. To treat her as the weaker vessel. Now once again, ladies, this is not a reference to inferiority but simply a call for accountability. Husbands have this call of accountability before God. They must care for their wives. They are accountable before God to see that their wives are cared for and protected. Husband, that's your job. She's under your protection. She's under your care. This is a responsibility you have to own and you have to take seriously. You're like, well, yeah, somebody breaking in my house, man. No, no, it's not that. You're going to defend her physically. I know that. But do you defend her emotionally? Do you defend her spiritually? Do you care for her in those ways? Are you caring for and protecting her beyond the physical ramifications of relationship? See, God has assigned you your role. Remember, your role as spiritual leader. And with that role becomes accountability before God, where you stand before God and give an account how you fulfilled that role God gave you. So will you stand before God and be able to say, I am accountable because I pleased you and how I tended my wife's well-being in every area. I was her provider and her caretaker. I protected her. I saw to everything she needed in every area. Lord, I did what you called me to do. Can you give an account that way? Are you living out excellence in that role? Do you consider her physical, her mental, her emotional, her spiritual, her every aspect of well-being, do you? Her safety, her peace, her joy, are you seeing to it? If she's under your care, are you seeing that she has all she needs? To have peace and joy, not in you, but in Christ, as you lead her to Christ and give her everything she needs to encounter Jesus. Because you can't be all she needs, but Christ can. Little side note, ladies, don't try to make your husband be all you need. He can't, only Christ can. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus desires to present his bride, the church, faultless. And he has done everything he has to do to see that happen. And now as husbands, we follow that example. To do all that we can do to help our wives live lives faultless before the Father. Are you doing that? It's your job, husband. Are you doing that? We need marriages that are excellent as we live out marital roles with excellence. And there's one big reason Peter mentions why we do it. The last point he makes. And that's marriages that are evangelistic. Marriages that are evangelistic. You see, our text here reveals the reality that honoring God through excellence in marital roles is an evangelistic tool that the Holy Spirit will use to reach those who are lost. In fact, Peter includes this in that first six verses of the chapter three there, talking specifically to wives. Now, understand the cultural context. In the first century, a lady really didn't have any rights. And for a lady to convert to Christianity without her husband really would have brought shame to him, would have been embarrassment to him. He could have considered that defiance. It would have caused problems within the home and certainly within the marriage. And so Peter says, okay, wives, you've come to faith, but you have an unbelieving husband. Let me tell you what to do so that the Holy Spirit will use your conduct, your faith, your faith, to reach your husband. But the reality is these truths apply to both husband and wife. The reality that if you're in a marriage where your spouse is not a born-again believer, Peter explains three things that you do to help win them over to faith. Now, let me be very clear. The Bible teaches in very clear language that a born-again believer should not marry a non-believer. But Sometimes people find themselves in situations where someone's come to faith and someone hasn't. They can be one. The Bible says here that those who do not observe the word can be one. What's it mean to observe the word? That means to observe the gospel. There are those who aren't faithfully submitting to Christ because they've never come to repentance. They haven't heard the gospel or at least received the gospel. They're not saved. They're not born again. What do you do? How can you win them? Peter says three things. I'll cover these very quickly. Number one. These people can be won by their spouse's conduct. You see that in verse one. You can win over an unbelieving spouse with your own conduct. The emphasis here is on action more than word. Often the unbelieving spouse sees the actions of a transformed heart, the actions of a life lived out in sanctification. Witnessing the action, the difference Jesus has made, brings conviction. Now, we definitely need to speak the truth of the gospel. We have to speak the truth of God's word. You can't leave that out. But too many men and women make a mistake because they use God's word to badger their spouse, to beat up their spouse, to belittle their spouse. They have an unbelieving spouse and they use God's word like a weapon to beat them up. And they wonder why they don't care about coming to the grace you talk about. Use God's words as a salve for their hurting soul. Speak the truth in love. If someone gets offended by the truth, let the truth offend them, not because you presented it the wrong way. So they're won by your conduct. Secondly, they're one as they observe the purity of the spouse's life. There in verse 2, Peter speaks of this. When they observe your chaste conduct, when they observe your purity, when they observe the transformation that Christ makes and how you're living a transformed life, when they observe this unquestionable, new, living spiritual nature that is so prevalent within you, they see it and they're impacted. You see, our spouses should experience the character of Christ in us and through us. They might not get to see Jesus face-to-face in a physical form, But they should see and witness and feel and observe his character, experience his character in us and through us. And then thirdly, he says this, they're won by the reverence displayed by their spouse. Once again, that's verse 2, chaste conduct accompanied by fear. When your spouse sees the seriousness that you have about your relationship with God, when your spouse sees how serious you are, the Holy Spirit will begin to use that. As you live to honor God in every avenue of life, those who exist with you closest will also be impacted because you are just that serious about God. Some of you men will remember the story Tony Evans told in his men's study in the videos. He talked about how his dad came to faith. His dad was born again, but his mom wasn't. And she made life miserable on him. She was hateful about it. And he would have to get up at midnight just to read his Bible so he could read his Bible without her being hateful. But he just consistently lived out the character of Christ, consistently let her see his transformed life, consistently let her observe what Jesus did. And when he could speak the truth, he would speak the truth, but he never would badger her. And finally one night she came down the stairs and said, okay, I give up. I need to know what you've got. Tell me what this Jesus stuff's about. An unbelieving spouse... By their conduct, by their purity, by their reverence, winning over a lost spouse. A husband or wife's godly behavior, living in a manner that is above reproach, that is often such a powerful tool that the Holy Spirit will use to break through into the heart of your unbelieving spouse. And as husbands and wives who both are born again believers and you're living out marriages of excellence, our marriages of excellence are powerful tools. They are a powerful tool for the Holy Spirit to use to break through to an unbelieving world. You see, you're pursuing a marriage of excellence not just because you want a happy marriage, but because your marriage of excellence becomes a tool that the Holy Spirit will use to reach your lost neighbors, your lost co workers. Those family members you have, as they observe the power of Christ in your marriage, it reveals their need for Christ in their own. It becomes an evangelistic tool when you pursue excellence in marriage. So, my friends, where are you at in this? Don't tell me you got it all figured out because there are no perfect marriages, I know that. But where are you at in it? Are you pursuing excellence? In the role God has called you to? Are you happy with "Mm, just whatever the world does, I can do too? Do you feel like I can't achieve because I don't know Jesus? Well, the reality, my friend, is this. None of us can approach excellence without the power of Jesus in our life. Because it's not us. It's not who we are and it's not our ability. It's the person of Jesus Christ in us and through us that allows us to accomplish this. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you'll never be the person your husband or wife needs. You'll never be the mom or dad your kids need. You'll never be the son your parents need. You'll never be the daughter your parents want because you are incapable. I'm incapable. We're all incapable of living in excellence without Jesus. Today may be the day you call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you so I can live out who you want me to be. We may have some husbands here. You need to pray for your wife. You need to start honoring her, esteeming her, deferring to her. Husbands, are you living up to that role of spiritual leader? We have some wives here that maybe your husband's not living up to spiritual leadership because, well, you've taken that role from him. Maybe you want to give it back today. I don't know what you need from God, and I don't know how he's spoken to you. All I know is this. I want to have a word of prayer. We're going to have an invitation. And you can do business with God. So let's have an invitation. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. I ask now that you move among us, that you speak to our hearts, Lord, that you help us respond just as you want us to respond. Lord, bless this invitation in the name of Jesus.